Let's go to God's Word. I want to go back to the book of Nehemiah chapter 5 this morning. We're going to be in, in, in this book for a couple more weeks, and then we'll, then we'll uh, move on to somewhere else. But I want to spend this week and probably a couple more weeks in this book. Nehemiah chapter 5. Uh, last week we saw in chapter 4 where the work of rebuilding the wall had begun. And naturally, whenever you start doing something for the Lord, the enemy shows up. And we saw last week the tactics of the enemy that they used against Nehemiah and God's people. They used the tactic of ridicule. Uh, they used intimidating threats. Uh, they used discouragement and they used fear. And in order to combat those tactics, we saw where Nehemiah and the people of God, we said we got to keep praying. We got to keep praying no matter what. We said we got to keep working as well. We can't quit. We can't give up. There's still work to be done. We said we got to keep watching because the enemy's always waiting for us to let our guard down. And we also said that we also got to keep remembering how great and awesome our God is. That in spite of the battles that we face, greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And the victory has already been won. Amen. And so we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from the stance of victory. And so we've seen where Nehemiah has had to deal with enemy after enemy. We've seen where he has to deal with the enemy of apathy, then a political enemy. And after that, he faced an enemy on the outside. But in chapter 5 this morning, we're going to see that he's going to face another obstacle enemy or enemy to the rebuilding of the wall. And so it was a rather surprising obstacle and one that we often overlook or that often goes unnoticed, okay? And so this enemy that he's going to face today is really more dangerous than the outward enemy, okay? And so let's read. We're going to read verses 1 through 9 of Nehemiah chapter 5, and then we'll uh, go from there. He says, Now there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We are sons and our daughters are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our field and our vineyard. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers. Our children are just like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. Then I was very angry when I heard the, their outcry and these words. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, You are exacting usury, each one from his brother. He said, Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. I said to them, We, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now, would you even sell your brothers that, you might be, that they might be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. And again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Now, what we see from this section of scripture is that the enemy that Nehemiah and the people are facing now, it's not an external enemy, but it's an internal enemy. And 
it wasn't strangers. It was people from within their own ranks. It was their own kinsmen, not the people that did not know God, but the people who claimed to know God. You know, Proverbs 18 and 19 says it like this. It says, a brother offended is harder than to be won than a strong city. A brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. See, it is much easier for us at times to conquer and subdue an enemy who attacks us than to forgive a brother who mistreats us. Okay? As a matter of fact, David writes in Psalms chapter 55 about a time which he was betrayed by a close friend. He says, for it was not an enemy who reproached me. Then I could, in other words, if it was somebody that I knew was against me and they were abusing me and they were mistreating me, I could handle that because I expect that. He says, nor it, was, nor it was the one who hates me who has exalted himself against me because I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man of my equal, my companion and my familiar friend. He says, we who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. And so David says, it was someone I went to the house of the Lord with. It was someone I was close with. It was someone that was supposed to be on my side there to help me. And all of a sudden now, they have hurt me. They have mistreated me. And David says, it'd be so much easier if it was my known enemy that was hurting me. And so we see here in chapter 5, the work has stopped, not because of an outward threat, the work has stopped because of strife within the people of God. And so in this chapter, we're going to, let me just kind of go over this for a second. There were four different groups of people who were involved in this crisis. There were, first and foremost, people who owned land, no land, but needed food. The population was increasing. The families were growing. There was a famine and the people were hungry. There were landowners who had mortgaged their property in order to buy food. Inflation was on the rise and prices were going higher. And many had their homes repossessed by the money lenders. There was another group who could not even afford to pay their taxes. And there were those in the ranks of God's people who were simply exploiting others. And so Nehemiah hears about this and he tells in verse 9, what you are doing is not good. Now listen, when Jesus was walking this earth in his earthly ministry in flesh, there was a time that someone came to him and said in Matthew 22, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And this is what Jesus said. He said, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, 
This is the greatest commandment. Now listen, we've got no problem trying to at least keep as to the best of our ability that commandment. But unfortunately for us, Jesus didn't stop there. Because he continued on and said, because listen, this man just said, what's the greatest? Now, when you're talking about the greatest, as far as I know, when you said the greatest, that's just one, right? When they would say this is the greatest team of all time, they usually don't say three, they say one, right? This is the greatest boxer of all time. That's one, not three. Well, he didn't stop there. Jesus continued on and said this, and the second is like this. You must love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. We don't have trouble trying to love God, but it's that second one that's really a stickler to us. Because there's a saying that goes like this, To live above with the saints we love, that will be all glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's quite a different story. Right? That's a different story than to live below with those that we know. And so, since Paul tells Timothy that all Scripture is is profitable for use... I want us to look at some principles that we see here in Nehemiah chapter 5 and how we can apply it to our lives today. Now, when we get through with this, some of you are going to say, I wish I would have been sick today. Okay? But you're here. Lock the doors. We're not letting anybody out. The first thing we need to realize is this. There is a direct link between the success of our mission and how we relate to others, okay? The writer of Ecclesiastes says it like this, in Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Now listen, that's just, my, that's just common sense stuff there. Now, I'm not talking about a slacker, but if you've got two hard workers, they're going to get more done than one will. Right? So two are better than one, for they have a good return for the labor. For if either one of them falls, then one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. And so what the writer of Ecclesiastes there is saying is, there is strength in numbers. There's strength in unity. Here in Nehemiah, the people are starting to end fight with one another. And if you are fighting each other, you can't fight the enemy and you can't do the work. You can't do the work if you're fighting each other. 
See, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 25, that every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste. In other words, it will not stand. Any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If you are against one another, it's not going to last. It's not going to stand. Do you realize when Jesus, before he went to the cross, that high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. Now listen, if you're about to say your last prayer, so to speak, you're not going to waste time praying on stuff that's not important. You're going to pray for the important things. And one of the things Jesus prays for in John 17, 20 and 21, he says this, I pray for those also who believe in me through their word. Now look what he says here that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And then he says in verse 22 and 23 of John 17, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me. How does the world know that we're of Christ? If we are at each other's throats, how can we preach the Prince of Peace when we're in war with one another, believers, okay? See, unity is not something that occurs naturally. It requires effort. Paul would say in Ephesians 4 and 3 that you've got to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, this doesn't happen automatically. It is something that you've got to work at. Have you ever just went through the scriptures and read some of the one another's that, that, that the Bible tells us? Well, John 13, 34, and 35 tells us that we should love one another. Romans 15 and 7 says we should accept one another. 1 Corinthians 1 and 10 says we should agree with one another. Galatians 5.13 says we should serve one another in love. Galatians 6 says we should carry one another's burdens. Ephesians 4.29 says we should encourage one another and build each other up. Ephesians 5 and 1 says we should submit to one another. Ephesians 4.31 says we should be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another. Colossians 3.13 says that we should bear with each other. This is crucial. This is important. Again, we don't mind the loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But that loving your neighbor as yourself, why do you have to put that in there? See, because if we don't have unity, now listen, unity is not uniformity, okay? We're not all thinking alike. We don't all dress alike. Okay, that's a cult. Okay, if you go to a church where they all dress alike, they all think alike, they got their own Bible, uh, leave. 
Okay? Just leave. Because you're not in a church, you're in a cult. Now, we can disagree without being disagreeable on things, right? And I'm talking about secondary issues, not talking about primary issues. But what we got to realize is this. The success of any church's mission is directly related to how we relate to each other. Now, we don't have much of a problem with that around here. We never have, okay? Uh, but, like, if you go to the early Church of God and that kind of stuff, those people are pretty rough down there, right? <laughs> There's not an early Church of God, so if you're trying to say you talk about them. But James says this, listen, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. In other words, where you've got to always have your way. It's your way or the highway. He says there is always going to be disorder in every evil, evil thing. And so the first thing we realize is there's a direct correlation between our effectiveness and how we relate to each other. You can take it corporately as a church. You can take it as a family. You can take it as a, you can go all the way down. There is a direct correlation with how effective we are as believers in Christ and how we relate to each other. Now, the second thing is we need to realize is this. Where there are relationships, there will be conflict at times, okay? Conflict is a normal part of all relationships. The closer you get to someone, the more likely you're to have some conflict. Now listen, I know you all think I'm a great guy. Okay? Almost perfect. Okay? I know you think my demeanor is sweet and I don't ever get upset. But the reason why you would think that is because you only see me for an hour. <laughs> right? When you come into God's house, it's easy to get along with people for an hour. Because if you don't like them, you can go sit on the other side of the church. And you can go out that door while they go out this door, right? And so it seems like you're, you're just a swell person. But the more time you spend with someone, the more likely you are going to have some conflict and they are going to offend you. They're going to hurt you in some form or fashion. See, we believe that if someone loved me, they would never hurt me. But listen, that's a misconception. Because the more you associate with somebody, they're going to probably say something. They're going to probably do something. They're probably going to react in a such a way that's going to rub you the wrong way at some time in your life. But listen, conflict is only negative if we approach it in the wrong way. Okay? Jesus says this. And listen, this is a very practical uh, sermon today. And I understand that. But we need to hear this kind of stuff sometimes. In Matthew 5, 23 through 26, when Jesus is given the Sermon on the Mount, okay? Now listen, when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you know, don't commit adultery. We think that's gospel, right? What about this other stuff he's saying? Why don't we not give any, the same weight to it? 
And here's what he says here. Now look, verse 23. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave there your gift before the altar, go thy way, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And so it's important for us, if we're going to be right this way, us and God, what makes us think it's okay not to be right this way? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so he tells us here, if you're in the temple at that time and you brought your offering and you're ready to get your praise on, okay, and you remember that your brother has something against you, he says it is more important for you to go and reconcile that situation than it is to bring your offering to the altar. You thought about that. You thought about that. It's more important for me to get that right at that time than to get this right here right, so to speak. And so when Nehemiah heard about the people and what they were going through and how it was causing the work of the wall to cease, he did as old Barney Fife would say. He nipped it in the bud, right? He nipped it in the bud. He dealt with it immediately because the longer you let that fester, the harder it will be to deal with that situation. And so if we're going to deal with that issue, which is what we are told to do in scriptures, first of all, we've got to discern the issue, okay? So when dealing with people, there's times in our life when we can be blind to certain characteristics that we have. You know, when you're driving your car and you first learn to drive a car, they would tell you there's a place when you're driving that's called a blind spot, right? Even though your mirror will show you a certain aspect of what's behind you, you still need to turn and look because it will not show you everything. And a lot of us, all of us, probably have certain blind spots that we don't realize that causes conflict with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And until you discern the issue, until you know what the root of the problem with is, how can you even deal with the issue? See, one good thing about God is this. All things are open and naked before his eyes. He knows everything. As a matter of fact, Psalms 98 says that our secret sins are in the light of your presence. And there are times in our life when the Holy Spirit of God, if we'll just be open to it, 
He will bring things up and bring conviction to our lives if we'll allow him to. Where we can discern the issue, where we can deal with the issue. And that's what he tells us in Matthew 24, to deal with it, make it a priority. Because an unsettled and unresolved issue is a breeding ground for the devil and also a breeding ground for offense. And so once we discern the issue, once we deal with the issue, you should always try to diffuse the situation. That's what Nehemiah did. He diffused the situation because he called the people. He said, listen, don't you guys fear God? Don't you fear God more than you fear your fellow men? And that's important. Listen, if God tells us to do something, we should fear what he says instead of what we want or what's easy on us to do. And so we got to diffuse the issue. And how do you do that? First of all, you do it like this. You do it by repentance. In other words, you apologize. You say, I am sorry. Please forgive me. See, James says it like this in James 5, 16. He says, confess your sins, your faults, one to another. Listen, I, I realize I'm not beyond saying something that comes across wrong. I'm not beyond doing something that comes across wrong. Neither are you. And a lot of times, the reason why we don't ask for forgiveness is because of pride. We just simply say, it ain't my fault. They did it. But listen, you've got to ask for forgiveness. Then you've got to, what I second thing, you've got to release the resentment. You've got to release the resentment. In other words, you've got to forgive that person. That word forgive means to cancel the debt. It means to give up the grudge. It means to bury the hatchet, not in their back. It means to give up the desire for revenge. See, you've got a right to defend yourself, but you don't have a right to avenge yourself. That's God's work. Okay? Peter came to Jesus one day and said, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother's sins against me? Seven times? Peter said, or Jesus said to Peter, 70 times seven, Peter. Now that doesn't mean that you go, don't go and you write on your calendar and you get to 490 and you're like, that's it. That's it. No. What Jesus is saying there is forgiveness is infinite. See, when you think about how many times God has forgiven us. I thank God that he didn't follow the rules here to the strictest and say, Rodney, you got 490 times. Because I'd have burned that up a long time ago. So would you. So would you. But some of us have been mad far too long. We've been hurt long enough there comes a time that you need to forgive and let it go and I'm going to tell this and I may I'll probably regret I just lost if I tell I regret 
But years ago, there was somebody that was in our church. And they had an issue that came up with someone else. And so they called me and explained the situation and they told me what they wanted me to do. Well, what they wanted me to do was not biblical, okay? It wasn't biblical. And so I did not do what they said for me to do. Well, when I didn't do that, it caused a rift between me and that, not between that person and me, I'll just say it like that, okay? Between that person and me. And this is something that happened years ago, and, 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 and I've I seen this person out within the last six months. And so naturally I'm thinking, you know, bygones are bygones. Time has a way of healing wounds. And so I approached the person in public to shake their hand and be nice to them and speak cordial with them. And when I did, they said, I ain't shaking your hand. Now listen, the problem was not with me at the beginning. It was because I did not do something that they thought should be done. Now listen, I went home that night, I slept like a baby. But for that person, that's like them drinking poison every single day of their life, thinking it's going to hurt other people. And it's, some of us have been hurt by words from others. that They didn't, you know... We've been hurt by others' actions. And we think we're really getting at them because we're holding it over their head. But all you're doing is destroying yourself. All you're doing, you, it's like a cancer that's inside of you. That's eating away at your joy. It's eating away at your peace. It's eating away at you, and it's not hurting the other person. It's only doing damage to your spirit. And so what I'm saying is this. Listen, we've all been hurt. We've all had things said to us that we wish wouldn't have been said. And I said it last week, and I'll say it again. If you're ever in any kind of ministry, don't ever say, nobody's ever saying anything bad about you. They have. They have. But the thing is this. If God forgives us, Paul would say, be kind-hearted, tender-hearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. Think of, see, the standard is not my neighbor in forgiveness, the standard is God. That's the standard that we've got to meet. And if God says in his word, if you'll confess it, I'll forgive it, and I'll cast it as far as the east is from the west. That's my standard. That's my standard. 
Now listen, when you forgive somebody, that does not mean that you forget. Okay? It doesn't mean you forget because when your brain starts forgetting things, that's a sign that something's wrong. But what you do is this, when, you, when, it, when, it bring, when it's brought back to your attention, you celebrate the grace of God. That God has given you grace to get through that. That God has given you the mercy to, 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 to forgive those people just the same way you have been forgiven. And so here's Nehemiah. The, the danger that is facing them today is not an external danger so much. It's an internal one. It's God's people that are at war with each other. And the enemy would love nothing more than to see churches at war with one another. Families at war with one another. Children at war with one another. And the last thing I would say is this. I'm going to try to hurry. I'm going to throw this one in here for us to kind of take home and chew on. What if we practice the golden rule? We know what the golden rule is. Luke 6 and 31. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What if we put that into our families? And we treated others how we would want to be treated. What if we put that into our, what if we put that in Washington, D.C.? And our politicians would do for us like they would want to be treated. What if preachers did the same thing? What if church members did the same thing? Because the closer you get to God, the better you're going to treat other people. 